0: Let's focus on the big issue of the day. The B.C. government has announced it will appoint a minister focused solely on delivering housing to British Columbians. Premier David Eby made the announcement today in Vancouver, which is hosting the 2022 Housing Central Conference. Now, generally, housing issues have been a small part of large ministerial responsibilities with no sort of consistency as to what ministry shares the housing portfolio. The current minister, of course, is Murray Rankin. He's also the minister responsible for Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. Now, today's announcement comes as the government announced legislation yesterday uh, to stop strata councils from adopting restrictions against renting condos or banning children from their strata. Uh, The second piece of legislation would also set housing targets for municipalities uh, with the promise to overrule those that fail to hit those targets. Joining me now is Premier David Eby. Premier, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, you've had a, a very busy few days. Let's talk about the news of the day. You've talked about uh, a new housing ministry. What would this housing ministry do that this government isn't already doing or wanting to do?
1: Uh, the issue of housing for British Columbians has really raised uh, to the level that it needs its own dedicated ministry, we're now uh, uh, moving directly into the area of middle-class housing, making sure that people uh, who are working and making our communities go actually have a place to live. And the job uh, has expanded dramatically to respond to the housing crisis in our community. Having a dedicated minister that's not also doing other jobs is going to be important for us to deliver for British Columbians.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, your announcement yesterday, uh, and, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about amendments to the Strata, Strata Property Act, which would remove rental restrictions for all B.C. Strata buildings has got a lot of attention, captured a lot of attention. But others have also said that this, these proposals that you uh, talked about yesterday and introduced, that were introduced yesterday, are still timid that you would also have talked about during your leadership run uh, wanting to legalize secondary suites in every region in B.C., uh, you also wanted to potentially, uh, you know, allow developers to replace single-family homes with up to three units in major urban centers. Your platform also talked about a flipping tax that would apply to the sale of residential property, uh, depending on how long you keep that house and how fast you flip it. Or, or Can we expect those uh, proposals in the near future, or are those now sort of punted aside and that's not something you're, you're focused on?
1: No, those are those are absolutely critical initiatives for British Columbians, and uh, it's important for uh, British Columbians to know uh, that uh, that we've been working on uh, on the housing issue for a while, getting the speculators out of the housing market, and addressing uh, that kind of activity through the speculation and vacancy tax and other initiatives around housing. Uh, The announcement, uh, the bills introduced in the legislature on Monday around opening. Units that are currently vacant for rental, really important to make sure that housing's available. Uh, this is just another step in the journey. We've got a lot more work to do. You're going to see more from us on this. And during the leadership campaign, I set out a number of different initiatives that we're doing the policy work on so we can deliver for British Columbia.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, part of that legislation yesterday was the Housing Supply Act, which aims to increase the stock of housing. Uh, in BC by establishing um, uh, targets for municipalities. Uh, what municipalities would you focus on? Is it just underperforming municipalities or where there is greatest need? Um, you know, some com- municipalities may only have fifty or 60,000 residents, while communities like Vancouver and Surrey collectively represent 1.2, 1.3 million people. How will you decide those 8 to 10 municipalities that would need uh, to be focused upon and uh, the energy behind, government putting its energy behind those markets?
1: Yeah, the, the focus of this is really on the fast-growing areas of the province where we know that in in those regions, we're not meeting the demand that's out there. Jazz, uh, you'll know we had 100,000 people who moved here last year, which was a record. Hadn't seen uh, that kind of in-migration to our province previously. And we're expecting to set another record this year. We need to make sure that the housing is there. And so focusing on fast-growing regions, uh, it will allow us to do two things. One is to uh, really recognize uh, those communities that are delivering that housing and providing to them additional support so that communities are livable and great places to be, great neighborhoods, the trails, the arenas, the pools, the parks, those kinds of things. And uh, and identify those cities that need additional support that uh, are not matching uh, what the demand is and figuring out how we can help them uh, hit these targets, so we get the housing in place it's you know it's up to the city to decide where the housing goes and what it looks like, and so on that's you want towers or townhomes that's that's your city business um but not whether or not the housing goes ahead. Uh, we need all hands on deck on this
0: and if there is an in instran- uh, intransigent community or council or mayor, uh you don't have a problem uh bringing down the hammer on uh, said municipality if 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 need be
1: well. So legislation has some really clear tools that are available to the provincial government in the event that uh, cities aren't hitting their targets and it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get there cooperatively. But frankly, I've had calls with mayors now across, uh, Metro Vancouver, South Vancouver Island, across the province and in the interior. And, uh, and I haven't talked to a mayor yet that isn't uh, ready to go and wants to deliver housing. Uh, what, what is, uh, the situation, uh, is that these mayors will say, look, we need to have, uh, you know, we School in our community or we need uh, critical infrastructure to be able to deliver that. And uh, and I couldn't agree more. So uh, this is facilitating conversations with those local leaders so that uh, we can build out strong communities for people and that when folks are looking for housing, they find that housing, but they also uh, you know, they, they have the amenities that they need to go with it. So it's, uh, it's, it's working well to really push those conversations already, and it's not even the law yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, late this morning, there was a press conference the BC Liberals held, uh, mm-hmm. and their leader, Kevin Falcon, said that uh, the government must launch independent reviews of, uh, of uh, BC Housing and the ATERIA Women's Resource Society after leaked reports on their part saying that there, it, indi- it indicated mismanagement. Uh, is there anything you want to say to that?
1: I haven't uh, seen the report uh, that Mr. Falcon is talking about. To the best of my knowledge, I don't know. Um, I'll uh, I'll absolutely uh, be engaged on that. I, you know, I think it's critically important as we expand housing and we work with the nonprofit sector that British Columbians have confidence, and that's why we did a fairly major restructure at BC Housing to make sure that British Columbians can have confidence about the work that's being done there. They've grown so quickly. Uh, they are the biggest residential housing developer in Canada and probably in North America. And, uh, and frankly, uh, they came from, uh, being quite a small organization under the previous government. So they, their governance, uh, needs to catch up. We've got a great board that's delivering on that right now. And the bottom line for people means that you can have confidence that when we're investing in housing, uh, that that money is going to the right place to make a difference in your community. Uh, it's critical work. It's a bit boring, this governance stuff, but it's about delivering something crucial, which is housing.
0: Final question to you. you we've got two years before the next election, roughly. Uh, is this the major file you think you'll be judged on when it comes to Election Day? When it comes to housing I, specifically? I
1: mean, yeah. H- housing is, is one of uh, four key areas that I heard from British Columbians about. Health care, making sure people get the care they need when they need it, access to family doctors. Uh, around public safety, that they feel comfortable in their home communities. They're not worried about the safety of people living in their streets, and they're not feeling their downtowns aren't as safe as they used to be. And uh, housing as a key part of that. And finally, a strong economy that's part of our fight against climate change with good, strong, secure jobs in a time of global uncertainty. Uh, These are the priorities of our government, and that's what uh, we'll be delivering for British Columbians because it's their priorities.
0: Premier, thanks for your time. Look forward to chatting with you uh, for a longer period uh, in the near future. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You bet, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, on Monday, Premier David Eby, sworn three days earlier, called the Housing Supply Act incredibly important. Now, critics say it's useful, yes, but it seems to promise far less than the massive housing boom he said was needed earlier uh, this year. There are two major pieces of legislation. One uh, piece of legislation that uh, wanted to stop strata councils from adopting restrictions against renting condos or banning children uh, from their strata. The second piece of legislation uh, is to work with, the province would work with uh, upwards of 10 of BC cities to decide on home building targets. Now data cited by Mr. Eby's government show that most cities aren't planning to build enough. Cities' forecasts of housing needs are notorious for being too conservative under the new bill the province the provincial government can make the final decision if it doesn't like what the cities offer mr evie promised a cooperative approach on monday but some would argue that uh, more stick may be needed than carrot Uh, i wanted to talk to our next guest because he has been around the housing and real estate market here in vancouver in british columbia he knows it well michael geller is president of the geller group he's an architect he's a planner and a real estate consultant good afternoon michael Jazz, good afternoon. I'm still trying to uh, understand all of this. Uh, would love to get your thoughts. Your thoughts on this legislation so far uh, that Premier Eby and his government have has introduced. What do you think of it?
2: Well, I like one of the pieces very much, and that's the uh, incentives or the encouragement that he's proposing to give to municipalities to achieve certain targets. I think that actually is going to be very beneficial and will result in significant increases in supply, both for market and especially non-market projects. And I'm actually at that non-market, uh, non-profit housing conference that David Eby was speaking to today. But I do have reservations, like many others, about the proposal to uh, restrict rentals in strata development.
0: What are your concerns? My main concern is that strata
2: title is a form of ownership it was not intended to create a stock of rental housing and one point i've developed condominiums i've lived in condominiums and i've invested in condominiums and one point that i heard haven't heard discussed is the fact that often investors have different attitudes towards the long-term maintenance of a strata title unit compared to owner occupiers Uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether renters should be treated as second-class citizens and I think I've said to you in the past sometimes the only difference between a renter and an owner in a building is whether or not their parents have given them three hundred thousand dollars for down payment they're the same people and indeed I think most renters are very responsible but what I do have some concerns about is those investors they don't have the same interest in repairing the roof or in painting the outside of the building if it isn't going to get them an extra 50 cents a month in rent. And that is a concern that I haven't heard anyone discuss. One other thing is David is very eloquent when he talks about how long it is that there's all these units sitting empty or the, the owners are not allowed to rent them. It's not entirely true. I think a significant percentage of those 3,000 homes that he refers to mm-hmm. are actually second homes for people. They're occupied less than six months a year, but they're using that rental prohibition as their justification for not paying the provincial uh, speculation tax.
0: So uh, in regards to uh, Mr. Eby's other, um, I guess, platform items during the NDP leadership race, he talked about uh, making secondary suites legal throughout British Columbia. He had talked about in Metro Vancouver, potentially allowing for the building of three units on a single family lot. Uh, He had talked about even a flipping tax. I asked him that question about an hour ago when he was on this show. He says he's still looking at that. They are studying it. This is just the early days of their housing plan. There is going to be a new housing minister and they will be looking at other uh, policy initiatives that they wish that they want to introduce as well. Do you see more coming in your mind? Because this, at its core, I mean, you've expressed your concerns here very well, but in the grand scheme of things, in regards to this challenge of housing, it seems quite timid. In its early days, I understand that, but very timid at the end of the day.
2: Okay, so I absolutely do see more initiatives coming along the lines we just discussed especially the legalization of secondary suites, basement suites, laneway houses. I think that is definitely going to come. But I can understand why, you know, one has to move a little bit slower on that one, because effectively you're going to be changing the zoning bylaws in every municipality in British Columbia, with the exception of the city of Vancouver, or one or two other municipalities that currently do allow up to three homes on, on one lot. But I think that's an excellent initiative, and I look forward to seeing, seeing that happen. In terms of some of the other uh, initiatives, I, again, you're, ch- you're changing zoning bylaws. Some of it have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, and it does have to be done carefully to avoid unintended consequences. So I, I don't think he i have heard the word timid. I don't think he's being timid at all, indeed— and i am a fan of david Eby. i must confess so but i don't think he's being timid but i think on some of these things he's getting advice that you have to be careful when you do a blanket change to all the single family zoning bylaws in the province
0: let's get back to the strata issue for a moment uh, so what would what would, what's the answer to this then if, if the government is heading in this one direction how would you fix this because we talked about this issue issue yesterday and we opened the lines and the amount of calls we got from owners uh, or specifically people who live in buildings where they don't have renters and they bought those buildings specifically for that reason. At the same time, you had many tenants <laughs> offended by some of the comments being made that uh, they don't want to A, live with in a building with tenants, B, um, it's difficult to get a bad tenant out, all those types of things. It, it was a bit of, I wouldn't say class warfare, but there was... Um, Uh, A lot of people offended by either side, and I was quite uh, amazed at sort of at times almost a vitriolic uh, conversation. How would you fix this issue if you say that we should allow certain buildings to be um, uh, that that we shouldn't have uh, rentals in certain buildings?
2: So, as one thing that hasn't been made clear to everybody is that currently, virtually all the new condominiums that are being built all those big glassy towers you see in Burnaby and Coquitlam and mm-hmm. Vancouver currently you cannot restrict rentals in all of those new buildings uh, the municipalities are currently telling you as a developer you have to you cannot prohibit rentals so what we're now talking about are the older condominiums that have been built and where many people did buy because they like the idea of living in a building with predominantly owner-occupiers. I understand there's about 300,000 of those units, and according to Mr. E.B., approximately 3,000 of those are using, uh, are, are claiming that they shouldn't have to pay the vacancy tax because they're not allowed to rent them. And again, he's assuming that that means those units are vacant. And I would really urge him before he passes this legislation To find out how many of those units really are vacant versus how many of them are simply second homes. Because if they're second homes, they won't come onto the rental market. People will simply sell those units and start renting. Mm -hmm. And it'll actually have a contrary objective. I personally would buy a second home in Victoria, but because of the tax, I don't. But I will probably rent one. And that's the reality that a lot of people know. I appreciate jazz. A lot of people listening to us right now have no sympathy for those who can afford a second home, when so many can't afford their first home. I appreciate that, but the reality is there are a lot more second home owners in this province than and the data seems to reveal.
0: Yeah, I recall when I was MLA, I got a call from a a Calgary resident who, who had um, uh, bought a place uh, in Victoria and their daughter uh, while attending university stayed there but they would take you know, the summer off or four weeks off, five weeks off uh, and spend their time at that condo would stay empty most of the time but the goal was to eventually retire and then move into that condo. Of course they ended up selling it because of the speculation tax. So there's a lot of that as well and you are correct by the way on the comments that you made. The new bill applies to condos built before 2010 which is when uh, the rules change to, yeah. to prevent newer buildings from restricting the number of rental units. So you're absolutely yeah. correct. Um, moving forward, if, if those other things that we talked about, the secondary suites, the potential three units on a single family lot. There's a huge amount of zoning challenges there, infrastructure challenges in regards to just uh, servicing and all that sort of thing. Are we inevitably going to be heading in that direction, or do you think that's politically pal- palatable uh, in, in, in traditional community? Forget about Vancouver for a moment, but places like West Vancouver, places like uh, Coquitlam or, or Langley.
2: Well, West Vancouver has already legalized secondary suites, I understand the mayor is going to be on with you, Mayor, this afternoon. Uh, Attitudes are changing quite dramatically in West Vancouver since I first started building there 14 years ago. And it was difficult to get coach houses or duplexes approved. Now, the developments that the community opposed are being held up as examples of what they'd like to see more of. So I think one can be optimistic. The other thing, Jazz, it's not just happening in Metro Vancouver. This conversation is taking place around North America right now, where municipalities are saying perhaps it's time to rethink single-family zoned areas. Not everywhere, but Mm -hmm. certainly up and down the West Coast, Uh, the, the, the same conversation that's happening here is taking place in those municipalities, those cities.
0: Yeah, there was a podcast this recently from the New York Times talking about just that, and we've been talking about that on this show since the day we started this show, and I think it's going to be an ongoing conversation. Michael, I really appreciate your time today. Always enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much, my friend.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure.
0: Spending a lot of time in the last couple of days talking about um, the two pe- major pieces of legislation that the NDP government introduced in regards to housing and dealing with the housing challenges. But finding a rental home without a no pets clause has long been a challenge for tenants as well. Now, according to the BC 25% of dogs and cats they receive are surrendered because their owners can't find pet-friendly housing that amounts to over 1100 pets that end up at a shelter every year in a 2018 report advocacy organization pets OKBC stated that even though more pet-friendly housing is being built much of this housing stock remains inaccessible to middle-class renters joining me now to talk a little bit about um, the pet prohibition here in british columbia is rebecca bredder she is an animal rights lawyer hello rebecca
3: Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, absolutely. Um, Just for our audience, just walk me walk our audience through what the present laws state here in in British Columbia.
3: Well, there are two main issues. One, or two main laws, I should say. One is under the Strata Property Act, which is our governing legislation, uh, governing stratas and condominiums. And under that law here, right now, stratas are allowed to have a pet prohibition bylaw. So in other words, they're allowed to ban pets in, in the entire building, not only restrict the number of pets, but they could have an outright ban. That's under the Strata Act. So for those who have condos, then for people who are renting under the Residential Tenancy Act, there there's a provision in there that allows uh, a tenancy agreement to prohibit pets and it could restrict the size, the kind of pets, the number of pets, but also, like I said, prohibit pets. So in a nutshell, right now, the law in BC is that if the owner of a property wants to prohibit pets in their rental accommodation or in the condominium building, they can do that. Uh, What
0: do other provinces do presently?
3: Most, actually, sadly, I would say that many others have the same type of law, but I could say that Ontario, for the last number of years has repealed that legislation and at least when it comes to rental properties and in Ontario you're not allowed having a prohibition on pets so renters cannot be denied a rental accommodation on the basis of having a pet. And so here, you know, let me just put this also in context, mm-hmm. is because I know the the argument. So first of all, I think it's it's fairly clear <laughs> that I'm totally against this prohibition. I, I don't think this prohibition on pets should exist. And one of the main arguments I often hear is, well, what about people who are allergic or. What about me being a property owner? I should have the right to do what I want with my own property. Mm -hmm. And those are two legitimate arguments. However, we really, really need to be looking at the context. The context being that in Canada, I don't know what the statistics are in BC. I'd love to see the, the latest ones. But in Canada... As of between 2020 and
2: 2022,
3: and this is an Ipsys read poll, actually Connecticut, formerly Ipsos, but about 60% of Canadian households have at least one dog or one cat. That's over the mid- half of the population or half of the households in this country have at least one dog or one cat. And it's no secret that during COVID, the number of people who have adopted or bought companion animals has increased. And there could be a number of reasons why that's happened. But the point is that companion animals are here to stay. We live in a society where people are increasingly having cats and dogs. They consider them their family members. Dare I say that they are just as important as any other family member to many people and that is not going to change anytime soon. So the government really, if the government is talking, first of all, I want to commend them on, on taking really good steps and trying to address the housing crisis in the province. I think it's they're, they're, they're taking definitely taking a step in the right direction. But it just infuriates me, I won't hide that, <laughs> that any discussion on a comprehensive housing plan to deal with our housing crisis in this province Needs to include a, a serious discussion about companion animals given the number of people who have pets.
0: But if someone, and I know you've raised this issue, but if someone has a property and just aren't comfortable with a dog or a cat, may not like the way Mm -hmm. they smell, and it may not be fair, but it is their property, should they not have the right to say no? Uh, And Look, I know you can put a deposit down, uh, and you may be reasonable Mm -hmm. people, but your idea of cleanliness probably doesn't meet my idea of cleanliness, and it's my property, and I should have a right to say no.
3: Yeah, you know what, and, and I hear that argument. I'm a property owner myself, and and I could see that people could have a number of different reasons, whether it's allergies, whether they've had a traumatic incident with a dog, let's say, right, and they just don't want to have a dog on their property. But I would say that's the minority of people, and we have to be looking at the facts. And the facts, as they are today and as they have been over the last few years, is that the majority of households have companion animals. That's not going in the way. That's, that, that's staying right here. And so regardless of... What the government does, there will always be people who will be unhappy, who will be mad. But we have to be trying to do our best, and trying to do our best has to involve getting rid of this pet prohibition. At the very least, I would say to start with getting rid of this when it comes to buildings like condominiums um, or or multi level type of of housing. So at least start there, and then and then t- and then take it from there. But I don't know, I don't have a perfect answer right now. But what I could say is that it is so hard for people with companion animals to find housing when they're renting. The number of cases I have and and calls I get, it's unbelievable. And so people often resort to, I shouldn't say often, but many times they resort to, saying that their companion animal is, is an emotional support animal mm-hmm. and well, sometimes that is true and sometimes you know it's a bit gray whether the animal really is an emotional support animal or if they're just saying that in order to uh, to be able to strengthen their argument that they're being discriminated against on the basis of health
0: well very interesting topic uh, you can stick around for a few more minutes rebecca
3: yeah, I'd love to. Oh,
0: great. And give us a call on the open line. If, if if you're a landlord, give us a call in regards to some of your concerns. If you're a tenant, I want you to, want you to share your stories as well in regards to finding a place. Let's go to Willie in Port Moody. Hi, Willie.
4: Hello, Jez. My comment is that Jason Evie is missing half of the equation. He actually needs to ensure that landlords have some additional protections if he's going to remove those protections. And- so, for example, I had a tenant with a cat in a basement area. The cat caused so much damage with urine into drywall and into flooring, within the thousands of dollars to repair. And cat urine is not an easy odor to remove.
0: Did, did you, so have, you actually
4: have
0: you had damaged depo- You had a damage deposit for the pet.
4: I, you can only ask a half a month damage deposit. You know how little that covers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's that's, that's the part that I think is missing. It's the same with you're saying, well, you're going to allow, um, no one can restrict anyone from moving in. However, there's no. he just glibly said, well, people, if they have problems, can go to the tenancy board. It is a nightmare process to go through that.
0: Yeah, Willie, thank you so much for your call. Uh, I've heard that from uh, previous callers on this show today. Uh, Rebecca, your thoughts. Uh, What do they do in Ontario? Do you you pay an extra pet deposit?
3: Well, there could be a deposit, but also let me just address our our BC issue here. First of all, Willie, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about her bad experience. I'm a landlord, too. I'm a homeowner and also a landlord, too, a pet-friendly one. Luckily, we've had mainly good experiences. We had a couple of bad ones, but it's just like any other issue. You will have good people. You will have bad people, irresponsible, responsible People always are able to resort. I know I'm not saying it's easy, yeah. but banning pets it should not be based on the fact that there are some irresponsible people out there or that some people will unfortunately experience what Willie just did. The law exists there that you could take either civil action against these people, you could go to the residential tenancy branch. I could hear people scoffing at me now through the radio, like, <laughs> oh, that's so difficult. I get it. I, again, I'm a landlord myself too. I get it. It's not easy. But that is not a reason to deny more than half the population who are really trying to find housing with pets and can't find so. And it is part of the housing crisis. There's just there's no there's no doubt about that.
0: Let's go to uh, Bernie and Langley. Hi, Bernie. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, what's on your mind?
5: Well, um, I well I, I'm from uh, originally uh, uh, Alberta. And uh, I had an apartment building, and we had a lady that was, uh, she had cats. She had about two cats, and we were fine with that. We, but in the end, when she moved out, I discovered that the cat, she had opened the, uh, an access door under the bathtub uh, for the faucet for emergency uh, shutoff. She took the, the, the access panel off, and her cat were going peeing in there, and you know, like, uh, it's like this uh, the other uh, uh, person was talking about just go to the Landlord and Tenant Act. Yeah, it is a joke. Because the worst that's going to happen, they're going to tell me, okay, well, they're going to tell the tenant you have to pay so much. But then it's up to me to sue her to get the money.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
5: the Landlord and Tenant Act will not do anything about it. I have to hire somebody. Uh, to get the money for me, and that's going to extra
0: cost. Yeah, Bernie, and, thank uh, you, thank you for your call. I appreciate that, Rebecca. I mean, I, I think there's some legitimacy there that whether it's the hiring mm-hmm. of more people, it, it is a frustrating process uh in oh, regards yeah. to dealing with them, and, and perhaps there could Absolutely. be just more more people hearing from landlords or tenants, whatever it may be, in just so these these types of cases don't take so long and aren't so bureaucratic.
3: Right, exactly. But let me just say for all these two calls that we got right now, mm-hmm. there are many, many other people who are renting out their place, landlords who are renting out their place, people living in condos with pets, who are great, responsible pet owners and don't have any issue. I'm by n- I'm certainly not saying that everything's going to be perfect and everyone's going to get along. And no, you're obviously going to have some some trouble. You're obviously going to have some experiences like these people. But again, that is not a reason to deny the, the majority of the population the ability to find housing with their furry family members.
0: If this were to go ahead, uh, could a landlord basically say, okay, only one dog or only one cat, you can't have two dogs or three cats, or do we open up a new can of worms when we say, you're allowed to have pets and people can't ban them, but don't we open up the other part of the issue, which is, wait a minute, I want two dogs or I want two cats or three cats?
4: Yeah,
3: well, that, that's, that's kind of the way it is now with some stratas, pet-friendly stratas, right, where they are, they're supposedly pet-friendly, but they limit the number, the size, the, the height, the weight, you know, like all these things. So I guess, as they say, the de- the, you'll see how it goes in the details. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the government right now, I have just been venting my frustrations recently because I haven't heard a peep out of the government um, dealing with companion animals in housing. And I really, really do believe that it is part of the housing crisis and it needs to be at the very least discussed. So thank you for the opportunity to do this. (laughs) It's certainly part of the conversation. It is.
0: It is. And I I, I do understand there are many, many uh, British Columbians uh, who do have pets and are looking for rentals. And it is frustrating, and at the same time, you do have to listen to landlords as well, who have legitimate uh, concerns as well. Rebecca, thank you so much yes. for your time today. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Jez. Have a good afternoon.
0: The Squamish Nation Council has called on the West Vancouver Mayor to meet with Squamish leaders to discuss the district's decision to drop reading land acknowledgements at meetings. In a strongly worded letter from the Squamish Council to Mayor Mark Sager, the Squamish First Nation said that the decision showed a lack of respect and was a setback to the positive relationship we have been cultivating with West Vancouver over the years, end quote. Now, a land acknowledgement is a formal statement that recognizes and respects Indigenous peoples as traditional stewards of the land and the uh, enduring relationship that exists between Indigenous uh, peoples and their traditional territories. Now, if you live um, uh, well in Vancouver or throughout British Columbia, you've probably heard this statement read out at the beginning of a ceremony or a lecture or an event. It goes usually something like this, and this is the case of Vancouver, quote, I would like to acknowledge that, that we are gathered on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam Nations. And of course, every respective community would have, have different uh, First Nations communities that would recognize. Now, the phrase, as I said, is heard of government and corporate and labor gatherings uh, throughout uh, British Columbia. Joining us now to discuss the policy change is Mark Sager, the mayor of West Vancouver. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. So let's chat a little bit about this. Yesterday, we had um, Hal Salomon on from the uh, Squamish uh, First Nation. He is the chair for the yeah. council. He expressed some concerns in the fact that uh, uh, that West Vancouver is moving forward to drop uh, reading land acknowledgements or uh, open, openly speaking about land acknowledgements at a, every meeting. They will be, of course, uh, written into the council agenda. Uh, so sort of walk me through the reasoning behind the decision by West Van Council.
6: Well, I, I want to start by saying, uh, Jez, thanks again for having me on. We certainly, the last thing in the world we want to do is show disrespect to our uh, our First Nations. Um, in fact, a bit ironically, we thought it was actually more respectful uh, because everybody that tunes into a, a council meeting or follows us goes to the agenda. And so we thought by putting it in a written form on the agenda was actually more respectful Uh we are looking forward to having a very constructive, positive relationship. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting with them. I, I'm hoping we're meeting uh, first, I guess, with the, um, the Squamish Nation Chiefs uh, right away. Uh, we've got some ideas we'd like to share with them about things we can do uh, in our community that are truly meaningful. Uh, I, I think there's a bit of a concern that the, uh, the phrase is being overused, and that may actually end up having a negative consequence, uh, which I don't think anyone wants to see
0: happen. Uh, when you say overuse, you mean uh, it, it being spoken, um, uh, uh, that land acknowledgement occurring, it's spoken before every meeting. You think uh, that it, that may be overdone, and in this way, it's always, well, uh, always there in print on the agenda, the first thing, and that in many ways is the direction you'd like to go?
6: Well, listen, we're going to talk to our, our First Nations uh, friends and and listen to what their thoughts are on this. You know, I like, if you go to a hockey game, mm-hmm. I like the way they, they do it at a hockey game. I think that's, it's frankly, much more effective. I, I went to a meeting two weeks ago, no disrespect to the people holding the meeting, but three times in the course of an hour, three different people got up and did the land acknowledgment Mm-hmm. And from my observation, I saw people going, oh, we've heard it. And, of course, you know, it's, uh, it's like you can say words over and over, but how about you actually show me what you mean? You know, let's do, let's do something that's real and constructive rather mm-hmm. than, uh, I don't want to be unkind, but just uh, saying something that are just words.
0: I, and i get where you're coming from and, and i think uh, uh many people would agree with you uh but uh you know speaking to hell Salem yesterday the sense that i got was that as a part of reconciliation that that verbally acknowledging uh that and and discussing that land acknowledgment and because is important because uh, aboriginal culture first nations culture is also an oral culture rather than a written culture and uh, that land acknowledgement that is verbalized is actually quite important.
6: Yes, I, 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 to be honest with you, completely honest, uh, I didn't think about that, or we didn't think about that. We thought um, putting it in written form was actually more respectful. So mm-hmm. we'll meet with them, we'll talk to them, and, uh, and we've got some ideas or some really meaningful things that we hope we can achieve uh, with them, in, in not the distant uh, future, but in the near f- future.
0: Mm-hmm. If, uh, in that meeting, a request is made for West Van Council to reverse their decision uh, in regards to reading land acknowledgements, are you willing to reverse your decision and allow reading land acknowledgements moving forward?
6: Well, of course, I've got, you know, I'm one member out of seven. I've got to ask my colleagues on council, but we're very open-minded. Um, you know, group of people, and uh, and I think we would like to say to them, we can do that. But look at look at what we would like. Look at these alternatives that might be more more meaningful and more impactful. Mm-hmm. But we have to have that dialogue. I, and I'll be the first one to admit, I wish I had thought about this and met with them first. Um, you know that. You're you're newly elected. You're trying to get things organized. I thought what we were doing was very respectful. Uh, Obviously, not seen the same way. I understand that. Um, But let's have a dialogue. I suppose, if nothing else, uh, it's it's set up our first meeting, I hope, at least.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, uh, Mayor Sager, uh, I know uh, you are working towards that meeting. Have you set up a date yet, or is it still in the process of setting up a date relatively soon?
6: To be honest with you, I've just left a meeting, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about it, Mm -hmm. but I just left a meeting where I was seeking some assistance towards an idea I have for the First Nations, which I'm anxious to share with them and hope they see merit in it. Um, And so someone in my office was was trying to organize uh, that meeting, and I'm just heading back to the office now.
0: Well, uh, Mayor Sager, I really appreciate you making time. We did speak to uh, Squamish Nation Council Chair Hell Salem yesterday, and I know you were in meetings, and I really appreciate you making time today uh, to have this thoughtful conversation. I look forward to chatting with you uh, on this issue and others. Uh, I know you're a very busy council as well uh, in in the months ahead as well. Thank you so much for your time. Chat very soon.
6: I really appreciate you uh, speaking with me, and thanks so much.
0: That was Mark Sager, the Mayor of West Vancouver, talking about West Vancouver uh, not uh, uh, reading the land acknowledgements uh, prior to council meetings. And as uh, Mayor Sager said, they would be printed out on the uh, agenda um, uh, for every council meeting. Uh, We had Hal Salem on the show yesterday. He is the uh, chair of the Squamish First Nation Council. Uh, He talked a little bit about the importance of land acknowledgements and, of course, Mayor. sacred did say that they are going to try to meet uh, with the council to uh, have this conversation. But we talked to Hal Salem yesterday about the importance of uh, spoken acknowledgements, land acknowledgements. Take a listen to what he had to say.
1: The decision to unilaterally change it from a sort of spoken or verbal announcement to more of a written really begs the question of what's the intention here and why, why make this change? What is it that they're hoping to accomplish you know I think for us it becomes a concern that there's going to be a sort of a a watering down or a retraction of the practice which starts
6: to raise concerns around what other things are potentially going to drift backwards or slide backwards and are we going to go back to an era where there wasn't a a positive relationship and you know with the district of West
1: Strand in particular there is a really difficult dark history where past you know mayors and councils were quite um, prejudiced towards the Squamish nation in, in terms of our dealings. There was a lot of challenge in that relationship, and we've come a long way from
0: that. That is Hal Salem, Chair of the uh, Squamish First Nation Council. Uh, and as I said in that interview, and uh, Mayor Sager did acknowledge it, that uh, uh, First Nations culture, and this comes from Hal Salem, and not me just uh, making these, this issue up or talking about this, but uh, First Nations communities are an oral culture. It's not necessarily a written culture. And Hal Salem mentioned that to me in the interview yesterday. And as uh, Mayor Sager, uh, in a very honest comment, said he was not aware of that. So they... Council and uh, hopefully the Squamish First Nation uh, Council as well. Both councils meet and they can come to a mutually agreed upon um, some sort of a solution to all of this. I look forward to hearing from both sides on this issue. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Vancouver's biggest boxing match, Muhammad Ali versus George Shavalo, on May 1st, 1972. This week, Global BC Sports Director Squire Barnes prepared a report about Ali's preparation for his fight against Shavalo at the Pacific Coliseum. Now, when Squire went to look for footage in the Global BC Library, he found nothing in the video files. Well, he kept looking. He is a persistent fellow. What he found, though, was pretty special. Joining me now is uh, Squire Barnes. Squire, thank you for speaking to us today. No problem. Well, how did this story come about uh, on the news hour the other night? A fascinating uh, uh, just visuals of uh, Muhammad Ali, George Shavalo at a, in a different era uh, in Vancouver. How did it come about? Well,
7: it first came about through a friend of mine in the boxing community um, who had met A guy at a funeral, of all things. And this guy was the son of a man who used to own a boxing gym in North Vancouver, which no longer exists, and and the man has since passed away. But when Muhammad Ali was fighting George Chevalho in Vancouver, which was May 1st of 1972, in the week before the fight, Ali... And George Chevalo both trained at this gym, which was called the Northwest Eagles, I think, Boxing Club. And it was on 4th and Chesterfield. It's no longer there. It's now an apartment building. And he said his younger brother, or one of his brothers, I should say, had been given permission by Ali's people to take as many photos as he wanted. I guess he was an amateur photographer at his high school in North Van. And he went around and took all these photos. So he said, we'll give you all these photos if you want to do a story on this, and we'll tell you the story. And then it sort of developed from there, as you know, in television, it's like, hey, wait a minute, we can add to this. And we started digging around the archives here at BCTV Global. I say BCTV because all the old films is back when we were BCTV. And we found two films, one of Ali and Chevallo, I think, at the Bayshore, holding a joint press conference on a couch in front of a bunch of people. And the other was Ali in North Vancouver chopping a tree, which was part of his training regimen. And he had to do this secretly, I guess, because it probably wasn't, even though it's Ali, people uh, in the city of North Van didn't want people chopping down their trees. And we got permission to follow him with our camera that day and and film him doing that.
0: Let's listen to a little bit of Ali chopping wood and then uh, a segment with uh, uh, the press conference with Shavalo. Take a listen.
5: He don't say nothing in my presence. It's an insult for fighters to talk when I'm talking.
0: So I found out why I was overweight. Living
7: in the hotels, um, it's just impossible for me to resist French toast. And to work some of that french toast off muhammad ali would go to the forest in north vancouver chop wood and trash talk Chevalo. George shavalo george Chevalo won't fall i'll make him fall sugar ray fell joe lewis fell joe frazier fell
5: i fell george Chevalo is gonna fall if it's in my power He's
0: fall. Squire, it's, it is amazing when you when you think of Ali uh, in the North Shore chopping wood. Just I, there's just no way anybody would attempt that today. I'm guessing, but it it truly is a different era, wasn't it?
7: Oh, it truly was. And and as I said, even though it was Ali, I'm sure they had to do it in secret. It wasn't like Ali went on the side of Highway One and started chopping a tree. He had to find a place, or someone helped him find a place where nobody was around. And the and the great thing about it was we had our camera there, obviously. Ali was not just chopping wood, but he was putting on a show as he would always do, you know, trash-talking George Chevallo, because George Chevallo never fell in a fight. No one could knock him down. So while Ali is chopping the tree, you can hear him saying all these famous fighters have been knocked down in the ring, including himself. Chevallo's is going to be knocked down. But I don't know if he... No- he never did knock down Chevallo, and I'm not sure he knocked down that tree
0: either. Wow. Uh, where did he stay when he was training here? I think he
7: stayed at the Bayshore Hotel, which, interestingly enough, at that same time had Howard Hughes in it in April of 72. So Howard Hughes stayed at the Bayshore, I think, for six months. There was a story in Sports Illustrated magazine about the fight in 1972, and the story was quite extensive. And what it said was Murray Pesham was the promoter of the fight, and Murray actually lost his shirt because only about 8,000 fans went to the fight at the Coliseum. But Murray apparently in this article was sending tickets to Howard Hughes and inviting him to these pre-fight parties, hoping he would come. And when you think about it, Jazz, it's interesting. You had two of the most famous people in the world at that time in the same hotel. One was the ultimate introvert and the other was the ultimate extrovert.
0: What's the chance of something like that happening ever again here in Vancouver? I mean, you have some well-known boxers, but uh, boxing is a different type of sport now and competes against MMA, I guess. You can't replicate that today, can you?
7: I don't think you could. No, Ali was a one off. And, and, you know, Ali, everybody knew who he was. Even people who didn't follow boxing or care about boxing knew who Muhammad Ali was. And there is no fighter, either in MMA or in boxing, that reaches that height. I remember recently there was uh, Conor McGregor, when he was big in MMA someone on a press conference said to him, oh, you're kind of like Muhammad Ali. And even he stopped them. No, he said, I'm not Muhammad Ali. Don't ever compare me to him. He is the greatest. You'll never see that again. That was a one-off. And it it is odd now that you think about it and Ali's legacy that only half the Coliseum was full that night for an Ali fight. And George Chevalo was a well-known Canadian boxer as well. But one of the stories was that the Seattle TV stations were able to run the fight live on television which of course could be seen in vancouver so what's the point of going to the fight if you could just watch it on tv
0: yeah wow so murray pezm did lose a lot of money there Wow.
7: yeah murray lost his shirt on that one it was a great idea and i'm sure so glad he you know he he gave vancouver that piece of history that you can't take away from us but unfortunately for murray <laughs> uh, that wasn't a winner
0: um, did it take you long to find that film canister? Because I, I know I've, I've obviously been in the Global BC Library uh, a lot of times, and um, and they do have these separate. In those days, in the seventies, everything was shot on film; it wasn't even um, a videotape at the time. So it was film. Did it take you long to find that canister?
7: Uh, yeah, it was like an archaeological dig, <laughs> basically. It really is. I mean, there if. There are two libraries at, at Global. One is a tape library, and tape sort of came into being uh, for cameras, I think, in the early 80s. Everything else is film. The great thing about film is it holds up better. Like there, you, you see some things that are on tape that look terrible now because the tape just breaks, and someone told me the oxidation falls off. I don't even know what that means, but yeah. it sounds it sounds impressive to say it. <laughs> but film will hold up. The problem is. You have to go back in this room where I think there are a lot of cobwebs and maybe mice. (laughs) I'm not sure. It's a little freaky. But there are boxes and boxes and boxes at our station that have years written on them. 1965, 1973, 1975. And you have to open up the boxes and sort of dig around and try to find the right date and then open the film canister and hope that someone back in the day has put in a sheet of paper with um, what's on the film, that's how you do it.
0: Well, well it's very it old
7: school. Well, it's it, fun when you find it, though. It is. It's like yeah. it must be like discovering dinosaur bones, you know, for for paleontologists. Like, look, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Look, well, Ali chopping trees.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, the press conference and the, the chopping of the tree. I, I thought that was just fabulous, and it's a bit of history for this city. That, that's for sure. I really enjoyed uh, watching this story, Squire. Thank you so much for your time today, my friend. No, thank you. That, of course, is Squire Barnes, Global BC Sports Director and anchor and, I guess, (laughs) video paleontologist. He found a canister of film at Global BC. And lo and behold, it was the old uh, press conference with Muhammad Ali and George Shafalo from 1972. And, of course, uh, footage of some of that training, which included Muhammad Ali chopping wood in North Vancouver.